Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you at least me and 90% of my voice. I just want to point out a couple of things that are, in my opinion, at the top of the news. Marco Rubio has introduced the first plan to cut your Social Security benefits. We all knew this was coming, right? The Republicans, the whole two Santa Claus theory, all of this stuff, it's all about 
run up the deficit so that you don't have the money to pay for programs like Social Security or like family leave, and then use that as an excuse to ax those programs. Well, here Rubio's going after two. It's a twofer for him. This is from Erica Warner in today's Washington Post. Senator Marco Rubio unveiled legislation to provide paid leave to new parents ta -ta -da, by drawing down their future Social Security payments. This is important legislation, Rubio said. It is also unique. It would allow parents of newborns to receive a Social Security benefit, paying a portion of their wages later in life. They would delay the date at which they begin receiving Social Security benefits. Brilliant, right? Ivanka Trump on Thursday welcomed Rubio's bill. Ah! Amazing. That's number one. They've already begun. Ivanka and Marco want to cut your Social Security benefits. If you happen to have had children, oh my God, and been in the workforce. Number two, this weekend here in Portland, Oregon, there's going to be a rally that in part led by a hard right Washington Senate candidate that may well become, according to the news media, quote, another Charlottesville, end quote. And so I asked the simple question. In fact, they're moving the meeting venue so that they can carry guns. Would you go to a protest if you knew that the Proud Boys and that the gun toters were going to be there? And if not, does that mean that this is the end of peaceful protest in America? I mean, I remember living in Montpelier, Vermont, the capital city of Vermont, and there were protests out in front of the capital literally every day, usually lefties, but occasionally it was the, uh, the Tea Party guys. And in fact, frequently it was the Tea Party guys. Tea Party guys had much better signs, by the way. They were paid for by the Koch brothers. So is this the end of peaceful protest in the United States? Is that what we're watching right now as the right rises, as the hard right, the fascist right rises? You know, the fascists, the skinheads, the neo-Nazis, these are all, I mean, this has traditionally been anathema to America. It's not what we consider to be in the American tradition. Even in, in the 1930s, the late 1930s, when the German Bund was, you know, had over half a million members across the United States and was holding giant rallies with, with uh, German Americans wearing swastika armbands and, and doing Sieg Heil shouts to Hitler. They were viewed as weird, as the outliers. They got very, very little press coverage because they were, hey, these guys are weird. But this is something different. So where did this come from? Mark Sumner in the Daily Kos has this just breathtakingly brilliant piece. And I strongly recommend you go over and read this. It's titled, The Cokes Turned the GOP into a Crazy Chain, Then Left the Keys Where Any Idiot Could Find Them. One of the things that we know about fascist movements is that they just don't happen spontaneously. They grow and are fed typically by very wealthy people. I've told you a number of times I've been reading, and I'm still slowly reading, Fritz Tyson's book, I Paid Hitler. Fritz Tyson was one of the wealthiest industrialists in Germany. He was the arguably the Charles Koch of his day. And he helped fund the rise of Adolf Hitler. And in the end, Hitler turned on him. Trump, by the way, turned on the Koch brothers. So anyhow, what Mark Sumner points out in his article is that for literally 40 years, the Koch brothers tried to buy influence for their libertarian ideas and for tax cuts and deregulation that would benefit them personally and would benefit Koch industries. They tried to do this traditionally for 40 years through the traditional means. They funded think tanks, they funded universities, they funded media sites, 
They funded pundits who went on television and radio. They helped subsidize radio programs. We know this from the Ken Vogel's great reporting over at Politico. This is not all in Mark Sumner's piece. I'm adding some stuff of my own to this. But they helped fund Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and a number of other right-wing talk show hosts. And that was all the traditional stuff. And what did it get them? Barack Obama and Democrats controlling both the House and the Senate. That's what it got them. And they were looking at this going, holy cow, this is terrible. We've got to do something. So Mark Sumner writes, then, so it's not surprising, perhaps, that they threw a long ball. In 2009, when a ridiculous micro-uprising began over, of all things, a program to help homeowners who were being crushed by the combination of high mortgage rates and a tumbling economy, the Kochs seized on it. This was Rick Santelli, Santinelli, whatever his name is, on, I think it was CNBC, and he said, we need a tea party. What was he talking about? A program Obama was proposing to bail out homeowners whose mortgages were underwater. A program that never happened, by the way. But Rick Santelli was all bent out of shape about, oh my God, we're going to help the homeowners instead of the banksters. So the Kochs seized on it, fed it, made it their own, and created both the mob and the monster. The real genius of that moment, Mark Sumner writes, was that the Kochs understood the real glowing embers behind the tiny whiffs of smoke thrown off by the nascent Tea Party movement. Racism. With a fine-tuning of the message, that program to help troubled homeowners wasn't anymore about troubled homeowners. It was about troubled black homeowners. Remember this? I remember this so clearly. This must have been 2009, right? The first year of the Obama presidency. And in fact, I had guys on this show saying this. It was about troubled black homeowners. It was about blacks who had gone way out on a limb to buy homes they couldn't afford and who were now rightly, rightly getting what they deserved. It was about blacks who had overreached their station, got on out of their place, just like Barack Obama. And he says those first gatherings of the Tea Party had signs of what was to come. Literally, there were signs, signs that said Barack Obama was a Muslim, signs that says the government was still the problem, signs that said ordinary Americans were taxed enough already, T-E-A. It was like a signal flare going up for the Kochs, writes Mark Sumner. So they took a gamble and trained one of their biggest guns, Americans for Prosperity, toward the Tea Party. They provided the bus. They booked the locations. They worked the phones to get the news on AM radio and local television. They sent out both their Koch-trained candidates and their Koch-funded teams to make sure that the energy levels stayed high. The Kochs had discovered that that rare nerve of racism and working-class white resentment was still there. It was just as throbbing and vital as it had been for Strom Thurmond and Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. The stories about how the money paid by, stolen from, hardworking whites was going to help lazy blacks and invading browns didn't have to be created from scratch. They just need a little touch-up. The Kochs found that the more they reached into those spaces, the more angry, ugly energy they found. They found that Republican voters didn't really care about deficits or any of that bunk. They cared about hate. The Kochs had spent more than 40 years winning over the GOP by handing out cash and working to build policy. But it took less than eight years to utterly transform the party by simply touching the raw nerves of racism and xenophobia. The success of that small investment in the Tea Party had to be heady, even for people like the Koch brothers. By 2014, they'd taken the Republican Party from the wilderness of a minority in both houses to the largest Republican majority in a century on the backs of racism in the Tea Party. 
They had taken the broken pieces of the Republican Party and turned it into a mighty engine. And all it took was embracing the fear that white America, straight America, Christian America was under threat from an insurgent wave of brown Muslim invaders waving rainbow flags. It worked beautifully. The Republican Party was back in the driver's seat, and the Koch brothers were driving with a cluster of freshly minted Freedom Caucus congressmen who knew exactly whose hands were on the controls. Right? So the Koch brothers, oh, our plan is working out just as we planned. Now we've got control of the Republican Party, and the Republican Party has control of America. And then Donald Trump strolled in, grabbed the keys to the engine they had built, and drove it away, to quote Mark Sumner. To their further shock, the Freedom Caucus Republicans that they had installed as carefully as screwing a bulb into a socket, were happy to hand over their controls to Trump. The new Republican Party is not about policy at all. It's about owning people, figuratively and literally, about getting in the face of those blacks and Mexicans and libtards and making them hurt, even if it takes hurting everyone to make it happen. He writes, there's nothing more threatening to the new cult leader than the old cult leader, right? Trump is the new cult leader. Who is the old cult leader? The Kochs. By some estimates, the Kochs alone were, are, but sees it still, it's not as if their investments bought them nothing. By some estimates, the Kochs alone are saving a billion dollars a year thanks to a tax cut bill that Donald Trump doodled on. That's a pretty good payday. And uh, Rudy in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Rudy, what's on your mind today? Hey, good day, John. Uh, Tom, how you doing? I'm well. I you hope know, you are too. You know, I was driving. I'm a truck driver, and I was driving back out of Virginia last night, and um, I had a feeling upon me. But you know, we so often speak about the politics of of, of this country, but it's it's not the politics. It's the it's the culture. If we go back to the culture of of of, of how this country was actually built, then we could start understanding why and where and why why and where are we at in this country? Yeah, you're talking genocide and slavery, right? That's right. We can start seeing and connecting the dots as to why this, this country is heading down this dark hole as we see it. Yeah. yeah well, this country was founded on, on white supremacy. It was founded on the idea that, right. that basically white people were the only real humans. It's built on hatred. Yep. So when you're talking about what's happening in this country, you're talking about people that are conscientious stupidity that are leading sincere, ignorant people. It was so wrong that the Koch brothers decided to fund the Tea Party when this, when this little tea, you know, racist Tea Party erupted who were upset about you know, a government program that would help all home buyers who were, whose mortgages were underwater. But the Tea Party was specifically upset about black homeowners whose, and Hispanic homeowners whose mortgages were underwater. And, and the Koch brothers decided to fund that uh, through Americans for Prosperity, their big gun. And that brought the Republican Party back. I mean, the Tea Party took the House and the Senate in 2010. And, and uh, you know, and Donald Trump came in, walked in in 2016. He picked, as, as Mark Sumner writes, you know, he took the keys to the engine that they built, the car that they built, and just drove it away. And now they're standing there yeah. going, what, 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 what happened? Yeah. Uh, it could yeah. have been predictable. Yeah, it's the culture of this country, and yeah. that is scary because we're talking about people that really wouldn't mind just all, almost suicidal people. I mean, people that just, you know, it's so much hatred and, and ignorance that, um, that they would do the, do the wrong just to prove their point. Yeah. And, and, and um, it's, 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 it's the most disgusting thing that, because um, when you're talking to these people, they, I mean, it's like a, it's a script right in front of them, right off of Fox News, and I'm looking at them. I'm like, 
are you really saying this to me? Yeah. And then when they and then when they discover that you understand what they're saying, then you try to correct them. Then they just it's 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 almost like hey, this guy. You, it, it's almost it's the weirdest look that they have, and then they just run off and or or they start to get loud and. It's, it's it's almost a freakish like situation, and it's the culture. Yeah. And in this country, I I don't know, you know, uh, when when I saw uh, uh, President Trump in front of those B, BFW uh, uh, guys, you know, I it, the, the first thing came to my mind was I wonder how many of those old white men actually saw black people being lynched or burned. Mm. But see, this is deep. This is deep-seated hatred, Tom. These people were not, they don't care. I saw this look in this eyes guy, in, in, in this guy's eyes, and it's unbelievable. Yeah. The, the, I, I, I get it, Rudy. And, and this, is, this is where, I mean, this, this strain of, of white supremacy, white identity politics has always been this extremely powerful thing, this extremely powerful political tool that politicians have used very carefully, very gingerly, very, very uh, gently, shall we say, I, and perhaps not quite so much. But, you know, when Richard Nixon talked about the war on drugs and, and, and uh, law and order, everybody knew that he was talking about the cities that were, you know, burning the riots of the 60s, which were the, the black parts of the cities. When when uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, when Paul Manafort, when Paul Manafort's company, Lee Atwater actually designed it, but it was he worked for Paul, Paul Manafort at the time. When Paul Manafort's company rolled out the Willie Horton ad for George Herbert Walker Bush, um, you know, that was using that that white supremacy, that white identity politics to scare people into voting for Bush. And it actually worked. It, 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 it hurt Dukakis terribly. And and this but. You know, and, and Republicans have been using this, and Democrats used to use it prior to the 60s. I mean, and, you know, George Wallace and all these other, you know, the, the Dixiecrats, I mean, this, this, was, this was their thing. But it was largely confined to the South. And it went national with the Manafort-Atwater political team working for, for uh, Richard Nixon, working for Ronald Reagan, and working for George Herbert Walker Bush. And, you know, they just, they just nationalized this thing. And then it kind of went quiet for a while. During the George W. Bush presidency, he actually had black people in his cabinet and, and, and Hispanics and a Hispanic attorney general. So it kind of went down a little bit during Obama or during Bush's presidency. And then Obama becomes president and boom, it comes out of the woodwork. I mean, all these freaked out white people and white identity politics becomes a thing, you know, and, and Rush Limbaugh grabs hold of it and Sean Hannity grabs hold of it and all these guys grab hold of it. And then the Koch brothers took this tea party, this, this white uprising against a government program to bail out black and Hispanic people whose homes were underwater. And it wasn't black, just black and Hispanic people, but that's how it was characterized on the right-wing media. They took that and weaponized it, the Koch brothers did, with Americans for Prosperity, this thing called the Tea Party, and, and turned it into a political movement and got people elected to Congress based on it, and that opened the door to Donald Trump. And that's how we got where we are right now, Rudy. What do you think of that analysis? Yeah, you, you're right on point as usual, Tom. The future is, is scary right now because we're on the edge of really slipping into uh, a deep, deep depression, something real deep, something I don't know if we can return from. I, I have no doubt that we can return from it. I mean, I'm just concerned about how much damage will be done by it. Um, but no. I, sh I share your concern. I, I think that the ideals of democracy are something that are hard-coded into human d DNA. 
Uh, most animal species, most mammals live democratically. I think that historically humans have too. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you, speaking the truth to multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know all about. Bill in Linwood, Washington. Hey, Bill, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Wow, first in line. Uh, good to talk to you, Mr. Hartman. Thank you, Bill. What's up? Hey, I've got an excellent word exchange that is so cathartic and makes Donald Trump almost watchable. Okay. So every time Donald Trump says news... I just substitute the word hair, oh. then I can watch him. In your internal dialogue. So, so Donald Trump is railing about the fake hair. <laughs> I love it. That disgusting hair. Yeah, it's a little uh, NLP trick. You're, you're changing your internal dialogue, which is what cognitive behavioral therapy, which came out of NLP, is all about. And uh, that, that's great. Uh, Bill, thanks for, the, thanks for the smile. That was a good one. I, I, I really like that. Uh, that was a very good one. Chris in Chicago. Hey, Chris, you want to talk about global warming? Oh, hi. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I think we had like 50 years to do something about global warming. Yeah, there was a great piece in the New York Times yesterday or the day before about how the 1980s was the decade when, A, we figured out that global warming literally threatened the planet and threatened human civilization. B, you had fossil fuel companies willing to do something about it. C, you had both the Republican and Democratic parties willing to do something about it. And then D, we blew it. Yeah, now, okay, let's say we take over Congress. Now, what's, what's the guarantee us that the Democrats can do anything? Look yeah. at all, not only global warming, but guns. How, how can we get anything done? It's, we, we had eight years as a, with Obama, nothing happened. Well, Obama was handicapped, uh, yeah. handcuffed. Severely. Uh, yeah. You know, very severely. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a real tough one. I mean, it's... If we go back to the 80s, and this piece in the New York Times, I almost did a whole riff on it on the radio, and then it seemed like it got too complex. But when Jimmy Carter was president, he came right out and said that there, you know, we were, we were having an energy crisis, right? We were having a, a crisis in the United States that we needed to do something about. And he actually proposed and passed legislation that did do something about it. And the problem is that Ronald Reagan became president in 1981 as a result of the election in 1980, as a result of Reagan's campaign conspiring with the Iranians to hold the hostages for an entire year during the campaign, and that just wiped out Jimmy Carter. And I think that the reason why the movement to stop global warming, which was actually picking up steam in the 1970s, the reason it stopped was because Jimmy Carter gave this speech on July 15th, 1979, right, the year before the election year. This is the middle, this is right around this time in 1979. Jimmy Carter sat in the White House and said this to the American people. The energy crisis is real. It is worldwide. It is a clear and present danger to our nation. These are facts, and we simply must face them. What I have to say to you now about energy is simple and vitally important. Point one, I am tonight setting a clear goal for the energy policy of the United States. 
beginning this moment, this nation will never use more foreign oil than we did in 1977. Never. And this was not considered controversial, but it flipped out the coast. Moreover, I will soon submit legislation to Congress calling for the creation of this nation's first solar bank, which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000. And it would have worked. It would have happened. And Reagan came into office and took Carter's solar panels off the roof of the White House and shut down these programs. And, and the Republicans rolled back Carter's legislation. And now we've got wildfires in California, dams bursting in Virginia, wildfires in Alaska. The entire planet right now, or at least the northern hemisphere, this is the summer, it was the southern hemisphere You know, during our winter. It was Australia on fire and Chile and Argentina on fire. Now it's us on fire. And this is the result of that change that was in part funded by fossil fuel billionaires and ExxonMobil and, and companies like ExxonMobil. Chris, so there's what happened with climate change. Hey, Tom. Yeah. Why doesn't the United Nations, the Secretary General, just start have an emergency session? We're facing extinction here. Yes. You know, uh, they... scientists condemn the United States, condemn Trump. You're killing the world. I suspect they are, and I suspect that those kind of conversations are going on at the United Nations, although nobody is willing to go out. I mean, here's the problem. We carry something like 30% of the UN's budget, and we house the UN in New York City. So if Donald Trump were to go super hostile toward the UN, and keep in mind his Secretary of State, John Bolton, is the guy who said that you could blow the top 10 floors off the UN building and nobody would notice, right? You could destroy them. You could blow them up. You could pull a Tim McVeigh. That's our Secretary of State right now. So uh, if I worked at the UN or if I was the uh, Secretary General or something like that, I would be very concerned about the possibility that Donald Trump could destroy the United Nations. I, I mean, anything is possible, but where we, we were on the right track and where we got off that track was 1981 with the inauguration of Ronald Reagan. Chris, thanks for the call. And uh, thanks for listening to Chicago's Progressive Talk. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder, and as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer and you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool and meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now and I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10 book contract right now and I'm writing so much every single day, I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting... 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. 
The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Jeffrey Sachs' new book, Building the New American Economy, Smart, Fair, and Sustainable. This is the preface. The, uh, the foreword to the book, by the way, was written by Bernie Sanders. Donald Trump, this is from the preface, though, by Jeffrey Sachs. Donald Trump becomes president of a nation that is deeply divided by class, race, health, and opportunity. In his acceptance speech, Trump pledged to be the president for all Americans. He also gave a very promising hint of how to pursue that objective in practice. Trump is a real estate developer, so it's not surprising that his brief acceptance speech was dominated by the idea of rebuilding, a word he mentioned four times. And then here's the quote. Working together, we will begin the urgent task of rebuilding our nation and renewing the American dream. We are going to fix our inner cities and rebuild our highways, bridges, tunnels, airports, schools, and hospitals. We're going to rebuild our infrastructure, which will become, by the way, second to none. And we will put millions of our people to work as we rebuild it. End of quote from Trump. This is a valid, indeed uplifting perspective. America desperately needs rebuilding. Its infrastructure is decrepit. Its energy system is out of date for climate a climate-threatened economy. Its coastal areas are already showing grave vulnerability to rising sea levels and extreme storms. Its rust belt cities like Grand Rapids, Michigan are boarded up. Its inner cities across the country are unhealthy for the people being raised in them. Rebuilding America's cities and creating a 21st century infrastructure could be Trump's greatest legacy. Trump's pledge to make America's infrastructure second to none is a correct and bold goal for America's competitiveness future job creation, public health, and well-being. Yet, as I will explain in this book, America today is certainly no longer second to none. On a recent Sustainable Development Goals Index, the United States ranked 22nd out of 34 high-income countries. For Americans returning from foreign travel, the well-known sign that they've touched down at home is that the elevators, escalators, and moving walkways of our once-proud airports are out of order. A builder president could indeed help to restore vitality to the U.S. economy and put millions of people to work in the process. All of the major candidates in the 2016 presidential campaign pledged a major effort to rebuild America's infrastructure. Indeed, Trump suggested a hefty, hefty price tag of $1 trillion, which is a realistic sum and target for the coming five years, roughly 1% of national income every year. The keys to success in building a new American economy can be summarized in three words, smart, fair and sustainable. A smart economy means deploying the best of cutting-edge technology. Our energy grid should be smart in economizing on energy use and incorporating distributed energy sources such as wind and solar power into the grid. Our transport system should be smart in enabling self-driving electric vehicles within our cities and 21st century high-speed rail between them. A fair economy would start with Trump's pledge to rebuild the inner cities. Such a pledge should include affordable housing, decent urban public schools and public health facilities, efficient transport services for low-income communities, parks and green spaces in places now burdened by urban blight, the cleanup of urban toxic dumps, comprehensive recycling rather than landfill, and safe water for all Americans. The water drinking disaster that afflicts Flint, Michigan, and similar crises elsewhere are brought to a rapid end and never recur. A sustainable economy means acknowledging and anticipating the dire environmental threats facing America's cities and infrastructure. The vulnerability of New Orleans levees had been predicted by scientists and engineers long before Hurricane Katrina. The flooding of New York City had been predicted long before Hurricane Sandy. 
The risks ahead to the United States in the event of unchecked climate change can be found in countless scientific and policy studies, such as risky business and the National Climate Assessment. Much could go wrong in an undirected building boom that is not smart, fair, and sustainable. Trump's campaign pledges to restore the Keystone XL pipeline and U.S. coal production are cases in point. Investing in a boom in fossil fuels would be an expensive dead end. Such projects will inevitably be closed soon after they are completed, if not in a Trump administration, then in the ones that follow. They are simply untenable environmentally, no matter where the lobbyists assert, no matter what the lobbyists assert. Billions of dollars would be thrown down the drain to develop resources that will never be used. It's funny that climate deniers are chortling about the incoming Trump administration. Nature doesn't care what they think, and neither do the, other, the 192 other countries on the planet that signed the recent Paris Climate Agreement. Fossil fuel companies can spend money developing unusable sources, resources, but they would be throwing money down the mine shaft as with the investors buying the, the bonds financing such hapless projects. Trump made another very important pledge in his acceptance speech that should underpin a successful strategy for building a new American economy. He said, I will harness the creative talents of our people and we will call upon our best and brightest to leverage their tremendous talent for the benefit of all. America has nearly 5,000 colleges and universities across the country, including every congressional district. And with the finest collection of engineering and scientific faculty, this is Jeffrey Sachs now talking, uh, faculty and knowledge in the world. These institutions of higher learning have schools of public policy, social work, public health, business administration, and environmental science. Most importantly, they have 21 million young Americans enrolled to gain expertise in the skills needed for leadership and skills for the 21st century. By harnessing the vast brain power and experience in our colleges and universities, in civil society and business, America could indeed enter an era of successful rebuilding, one that creates a smart, fair, and sustainable economy that is truly second to none and serves as an inspiration for other parts of the world. This is from Jeffrey Sachs. He wrote it in November of 2016, right after the election, before the inauguration. We've been talking about what happens when the fascists turn violent and where this all started. You know, I'd like to step you into the Wayback Machine and go back to 2008. Uh, Mitt Romney is running against Barack Obama. And that racist strain that has been with us since the founding of this republic, I mean, our country was founded in the genocide of Native Americans and the enslavement of Africans, that racism has been only very delicately, carefully used historically by white politicians, sometimes very blatantly, obviously, you know, cross burnings and lynchings and all that kind of stuff down in the South largely, although it had happened all over the United States. But in the last hundred years, well, the last 50 years anyway or so, politicians have been a little more careful about using it until the era, I think, of right-wing hate radio. And so here we are in 2008 as Obama is running against Romney, and we hear this. Obama's campaign wants to turn Mitt Romney into the candidate of old, straight, white men. So does that mean you should vote for Obama because he's a young, black, gay man? Well, I'm asking, what does this mean? Right, right. Is that even the conversation to have, Rush? I mean, really? And this is where we're, you know, Yanis Bataris. You don't know who Yanis Bataris is, in all probability, unless you're a fan of Greek politics. He's the mayor of Thessaloniki, which is the second largest city in Greece. And uh, he's 76 years old. He's been dry for 27 years. He's an ex-alcoholic. 
Uh, in his seven years as mayor, he has championed pride parades in that northern coastal city, initiated plans for a Holocaust Memorial Museum, and expanded tourism from Turkey, Israel, and the Balkans. And there was a protest uh, a few months ago, a, a number of them. This was on January 21st in Thessaloniki. And quoting this piece by Patrick Strickland in The New Republic, newrepublic.com, it's titled, When Fascists Turn Violent. Some far-right participants distributed flyers dubbing Butaras a slave of the Jews. And others attacked a pair of anarchist squats, you know, anarchist uh, encampments. The anarchists are the lefties, right? Setting one ablaze. By the time the squares and streets emptied, unknown assailants had defaced the Holocaust monument in the city center. They left behind the logo of the neo-fascist Golden Dawn Party, which first entered Parliament in 2013. And then they tell this very specific story about this recent protest, shall we say, that emerged when uh, Butaras, the liberal mayor, showed up. And this, we need to take this stuff seriously. This is happening in Greece right now. It could be happening in any city in America, in my opinion, or we're on the edge of it could be happening. Butaras wasn't fearful when the shouts first started, writes Patrick Strickland, but the hostility swelled. The moment lingered, pregnant with tension, until someone in the back of the crowd shouted, Let's go! Within seconds, the mayor was encircled by frantic young men who shoved him and spat at him. Bottles flew in his direction. A punch came, and then another. This 76-year-old man being beaten up by the crowd. His small entourage gripped him by his raw-boned arms and guided him toward the car as the mob lashed out at them, several punches landing on city council president Gula as well. The attackers followed, some sprinting from the back to catch up. A tall, limber young man dressed in black, skin-tight Everlast shirt and matching athletic shorts delivered a series of powerful kicks to the mayor's chest. Butaras lost his balance and tumbled to the ground, the crowd kicking him. The guards got him back up. Finally, they reached the car. Gula prying open the passenger side door. Butaras slid in and the car sped away as a final string of strikes burst the rear window into a shatter of jagged shards. They smashed the rear window of his car as he was driving away. Gula stayed behind. The mob's anger was gone, and in its place was deafening applause. The thing that unites fascists is hatred. Hate black people, hate gay people, hate Hispanic people, hate women, hate liberals, libtards, progressives, hatred. And that's what the Kochs started paying for, started funding in 2009 when Barack Obama became president and the first Tea Party emerged. And they decided, hey, let's go in on this. And now you've got, for example, Jim Jordan. He ran as a Tea Partier. He is in the House of Representatives as a Tea Partier. And he now wants to become the Speaker of the House of Representatives. This is how powerful, how after 40 years of trying to get control of the Republican Party in the United States, with some success for the Republican Party, but failing with regard to control of the United States. I mean, Barack Obama won in 2008, big, took the House and the Senate too. The Kochs decided, oh, let's just support this little Tea Party thing where they hate this black guy. You know, after all, he's a gay man and he's a secret Muslim and he wasn't born in the United States. Hey, you know, I'm not sure that the Kochs were funding specifically that, but that was the rhetoric that was coming out of these Tea Party meetings 
that we all watched on TV and laughed at and said, oh, those silly people with their tea bags hanging from their tri-cornered hats, talking about how Obama was an illegitimate president, because after all, it's called the White House for a reason. And you know, the media and all the rest of us just, oh, it's just kind of funny. Right. Hi, for the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from The Crash of 2016, which might happen in early 2017. We'll see, but it's coming. Uh, this is from Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is titled, Reagan Kidnapped the Jetsons. In a 1966 article, Time Magazine looked toward the future and what the rise of automation would mean for average working Americans. It concluded, quote, by 2000, the machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. With government benefits, even non-working families will have, by one estimate, an annual income of thirty dollars to $40,000. How to use leisure meaningfully will be a major problem. End of quote. And that was thirty dollars to $40,000 in 1966 dollars, which would roughly be $199,000 to $260,000 in 2010 dollars. Ask anybody who was a teenager or older in the 1960s, this was a big sales pitch for automation and the coming computer age. There was even a cartoon show about it, The Jetsons. And everybody looked forward to the day when increased productivity from robots, computers, and automation would translate into fewer hours worked or more pay or both for every American worker. And there was good logic behind the idea. The premise was simple. With better technology, companies would become more efficient. They'd be able to make more things in less time. Revenues would skyrocket, and, and Americans would bring home higher and higher paychecks, all the while working fewer and fewer hours. So by the year 2000, according to Time magazine in 1966, we would enter what was then referred to as the leisure society. Futurists speculated that the biggest problem facing America in that Jetsons future of the year 2000 would be just how the heck everyone would use all their extra leisure time. And, of course, there were also those who worried about what kind of degeneracy would emerge when a nation has lots of money and free time on its hands. Neither happened, and it didn't happen because Ronald Reagan stole the leisure society from us and handed it over to the economic royalists. In 1981, the royalists went right to work, taking down that first pillar on which FDR rebuilt the American middle class, progressive taxation. Taking advantage of the oil shock crisis, neoliberal shock troopers immediately ushered through a revolutionary change in the tax code with the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. The first major piece of legislation signed by Reagan has slashed the top marginal income tax rate from 70% to 50%, cutting estate taxes for wealthy businesses and slashing capital gains and corporate profit taxes. Reagan succeeded a few years later in dropping the top income tax rate even more to 28%, where it hadn't been since the Great Depression. It was the second largest tax cut in history, and it was nearly identical to the largest tax cut ever, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon's in the 1920s, the one that created the bubble known as the Roaring Twenties, which eventually burst in 1929. The great forgetting had certainly arrived. The economic mistakes of the 1920s were coming back around. And again, the influx of all this hot money in the market coupled with a robust deregulation agenda throughout the 1980s and 90s, would trigger a series of painful financial panics. The reason why the Leisure Society could be imagined by Time magazine is because ever since 1900, working people's wages tracked evenly with working people's productivity. 
So as productivity can continue to rise, which was likely due to increased automation and better technology, so too would everyone's wages. And the glue holding this logic together was the current top marginal income tax rate. In 1966, when the Time article was written, the top marginal income tax rate was 70%. And what that effectively did was encourage CEOs to keep more money in their businesses and invest, to invest in new technology to pay their workers more, to hire new workers and expand. After all, what's the point of sucking millions and millions of dollars out of your business if it's going to be taxed at 70%? According to this line of reasoning, if businesses were to suddenly become more profitable and efficient thanks to automation, then that money would flow through, throughout, throughout the businesses, raising everyone's standard of living, increasing everyone's leisure time. But when Reagan top, dropped that top tax rate down to 28%, everything changed, as you can see in this graph. Now, as businesses became more profitable, there was a far greater incentive for CEOs to pull those profits out of the company and pocket them because they were suddenly paying an incredibly low tax rate. And that's exactly what they did. All those new profits, thanks to automation, that were supposed to go to everyone, giving us all higher paychecks and more time off, instead went to the top, to the economic royalists. Suddenly, the symmetry in the productivity wages chart broke down. Productivity continued increasing because technology continued improving, but wages stayed flat. And again, since higher and higher profits could be sucked out of the company and taxed at lower and lower levels, there was no incentive to reduce the number of hours everyone worked. In the 1950s, before that Time Magazine article predicted the leisure society, uh, before that article was written, the average American worked, working in manufacturing put in about 42 hours of work a week. Today, the average American working in manufacturing puts in about 40 hours a week. This means that despite the fact that productivity has increased 400% since 1950, Americans are working on average only two fewer hours a week. If productivity is four times higher than in 1950, then Americans should be able to work four times less, or just 10 hours a week, to afford the same 1950s lifestyle when a family of four could get by on just one paycheck, own a home, own a car, put their kids through school, take a vacation every now and then, and retire comfortably. But all that was wiped out by Reaganomics and Ronald Reagan. And that's just the beginning of the setup for the crash of 2016. On the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, Luke Vargas. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Luke, welcome back to the program. It looks like Russia is letting guest workers from North Korea in in violation of UN sanctions. What's that all about? I saw that in the Financial Times this morning. Yeah, this is originally a Wall Street Journal report. They have been a busy publication this week when it comes to trying to peel back the lid on North Korean activity. They're the ones, I think, on early Monday morning that had that report saying that there was some evidence of new intercontinental ballistic missile production at one of North Korea's facilities. Now the paper is reporting that since uh, about this time last year, 10,000 new North Korean workers have registered in Russia um, there's been extensive reporting on this trend through the years. Uh, I have met some North Koreans in in Moscow at a at a North Korean restaurant. That's one of the more obvious places where you can find these North Korean workers, um, many of whom get paid in cash and many of whom send back the majority of their earnings to the North Korean government. But they're also employed in various types of, um, you know, sort of harder labor, working in factories working at mines in eastern parts of Russia that are much closer to the North Korean border. And this had been, you know, this is such a profitable source of cash for the North Korean regime, getting about $150 million to $300 million each year in cash from these workers from Russia alone, 
that the U.N. Security Council last year and at one point previous to that had decided, look, we've got to cut down on this. We've got to demand that uh, no new contracts be signed. The workers that are still there can serve out their contracts. That's what Russia is saying is the misunderstanding here, that these are several thousand people who have contracts going until the end of 2019 and that the paperwork that the Wall Street Journal had obtained was just sort of, um, you know, sort of changes in salary and things like that. But um, the U.S. seems to be taking this seriously. Just a, a minute before getting on the phone with you, we uh, got an email from uh, the Nikki Haley's office here at the United Nations. The U.S. is considering this Wall Street Journal report to basically be fact, saying that this is further proof Russia is not being cooperative on North Korea. And Nikki Haley pointed out that, you know, just several weeks ago, we had Russia and China joined together to block a statement that would have investigated oil shipments on the high seas, these ship-to-ship oil transfers, which uh, allegedly helped North Korea sort of get more oil than it's permitted to get, according to international sanctions. So put it all together, I'm, I'm pretty surprised, to be honest, Tom, just how um, outspoken in condemnation uh, the State Department and Nikki Haley have been today in condemning specifically Russian compliance with these North Korean sanctions. It'll um, be interesting to see if China, at least with China, you've seen sort of an illusion, right, where, you know, we keep paying lip service to their great assistance because I think we have bigger things we want to work on with them. It doesn't seem like the same approach is being used uh, in, the, in these criticisms of, of Russia. It'll be interesting to see if Donald Trump has a word to say about this. I'm guessing that he won't. Um, He's delegated most of these sort of sanctions complaints to, to Tillerson, or rather, not Tillerson, Mike Pompeo uh, and Nikki Haley, who I right. still think has sort of the most, the longest leash to be able to be critical of, of interests that the president himself doesn't want to condemn. Yeah. She's still a rising Republican star, and this is, and unless she turns Donald Trump into an enemy, there's a good future for her in the Republican Party, I think. Meanwhile, you say the White House is staffing up to unveil a Mideast peace plan, really? Yeah, this is the National Security Council of the White House, which has put out a call for volunteers from other U.S. agencies to send over employees for six to 12 months. I don't know if this is going to happen on evenings or weekends, but the point is the same, that they want to start doing strategic communications. They want to start working with allies in the region and trying to find the time to unveil this still as yet unfinished peace plan. We know little about the actual plan. The Associated Press, which broke this story, was pretty candid in their reporting, saying despite the fact that the National Security Council seems to be making motions towards unveiling a plan, our reporters have heard absolutely nothing about what that plan might look like for months, which I think you know, is a good reminder that this may be putting the, you know, cart ahead of the horse. But uh, nonetheless, we're hearing that the basic principle of this peace plan is that the U.S. is going to give money toward Gaza reconstruction, that this is not, they don't even want to wade into the bigger issues of recognition of a Palestinian state or anything like that, a two-state solution, that they're going to go to sort of more immediate issues. And the thinking in the White House is give the Palestinians enough money for Gaza reconstruction, and they'll put aside all of their demands for having a you know Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem or the right to go back to homes that they've been kicked off of. To me, given all of the bad blood on behalf of the Palestinians, there's complete distrust of the Greenblatt Kushner process that there's not going to be a way to use, you know, $100 million in Gaza reconstruction money to get them to bury their chief complaints. So it would have I'm to pretty be cynical millions. about this pitch. 
I mean, it would have to be billions. Yeah, even they, they, then, I just I don't think you can. That they wouldn't save face by taking cash in exchange for forestalling really important political demands. So I don't. Yeah. Just like the past peace process that we've seen and all the actions from this administration so far and the Israel-Palestine question, I'm not too confident about this one either. Yeah, me neither. Luke Vargas, you can follow him on Twitter at the Courier. Thank you, Luke. Thanks, Tom. Talk to you soon. Always good talking with you. Yep. Look forward to next week. We'll be back with more here on the Tom Hartman program in just a moment. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Adam in New Orleans. Hey, Adam. Thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, Tom. Um, I've been trying to understand our increased velocity towards Iran, NATO, China. Uh, looking at uh, the U.S.'s military positioning, how the Trump administration is resetting alliances, in other words, trying to take emotion out of it, it appears that we're preparing for real and asymmetrical warfare against China by attacking Iran, a key source of China's oil. So echoing your position, it's all about the money. We seem to be queuing up for World War III seriously. Right. I mean, do you have some other read on this? No, I don't. Sean, uh, what was the name of the guy who made that movie that we we uh, we played a year and a half ago? We played a clip from it here on the program, and he came on. It was the, coming, the title of the movie was "The Coming War with China." He was a British reporter, and he produced this. I know movie. Who you're talking about. Yeah, but I, I can't yeah. We can't it. we can't remember his name. <laughs> Sean can't remember it either. But uh, he, yeah. I mean, he he made this movie that that I watched. Louise and I watched it, and it's absolutely shocking. We have uh, over 100 military bases basically encircling China. And say that again, uh, Pilger, John Pilger. That's right, John Pilger, P-I-L-G-E-R. You can Google the movie. I'm, I'm guessing it's probably out there now and 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 uh, on YouTube or whatever. And it was called The Coming War with China. And it makes the point that you're making, and it makes it really, really well. And and I think it's something that we need to take very seriously: is are we preparing for a war with China? Is this the last gasp of American empire? Is this the you know because China has largely displaced America as the manufacturing center of the world, and uh, that's not a good position to be in. And when empires start to disintegrate and lose their power, sometimes they they reform into nice little countries like the UK did. And sometimes they lash out. Adam, thanks for the call. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high-tech. And yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. 
There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com right now. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. Barbara in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Barbara, what's on your mind? Hello, Tom. How are you doing? I haven't spoke to you in a while, but you look good. Since you've been sick, you look very well. Thank you. I'm feeling good. So what's on your mind? You know, the earlier piece that you read today about a young man, since it's been so long ago, I literally forgot, about when uh, Barack Obama uh, tried to help people whose mortgage was underwater. Right. Now, whatever the bill was, I do not imagine on the bill he put on there, I am only going to help. African-American people that's mortgages is underwater. Correct. I know that wasn't in the bill. Yep. You're right. He said, I'm going to help every American whose mortgage is underwater. That's right. This is what I understood. I don't understand. You know, there was a, 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 a Martin Luther King gave a speech on the steps of Montgomery. And he stood and he told the, 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 the poor, and let's be really frank, there are Caucasian people that are poor. There are Caucasian people right now that are struggling to keep their heads above water. Yep. This is it. This is what's going on. And he told them, you, basically what he said, they've been hoodwinked. Barbara, do you, been hoodwinked. Do, do you remember the news reports from that time? I, I remember really clearly, and I, I'd like to reality check this with you. I remember really clearly a news report, and, I, and I, this was repeated several times, where they were talking about uh, President Obama wanting to help homeowners whose mortgages were underwater, and then they would always follow it, or the, the times that I saw, and I, like I said, I remember this clearly, they, they said, this is mostly first-time home buyers, and they are getting into the, home, into the housing market because interest rates are at a historic low, and money has been really, really easy, until the until the crash came at the end of the Bush uh, eight years, and yeah. and that these first time home buyers are disproportionately minorities, Hispanics and blacks, yeah. and yeah. and they just kind of mentioned it in passing, and then you get Rick Santelli going, you know what? We're gonna bail out these people. We need a Tea Party, <laughs> and then you got the Tea Party out there going, taxed enough already? Yeah, we no no do not help those those minorities with their mortgages, and I mean you know it's like they racialize this thing. It's nuts. Yeah. See, this is what this 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 is what I'm saying. This is these people have been told over and over and over and over again. You're being hoodwinked. Yep. Uh, let's see, Richard in Los Angeles. Hey, Richard, what's up? The Trump administration wants the ACLU to reunite the families that they separated. Now, was that a was that a throwaway soundbite, or is that an actual policy? I saw the headline. I didn't. I haven't read the story. It came over CNN this morning, and the only thing I can think of, Tom, it, they're looking for a scapegoat. Yeah. And and a resolution. I mean, if the ACLU would do it, it would take the pressure off the Trump administration. And now now you've got this story. I mean, this. Uh, 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 what is it? ProPublica.org right now has this story, which is starting to migrate into the into the media. I saw it on Huffington Post this morning, but I haven't seen it anywhere else yet. 
um, that uh, there were either six or eight, I believe it was six young boys in one of the facilities uh, that you know ICE is running or ICE is mandating these or remanding these kids to, uh, who were all uh, molested by uh, a young man who worked there who was HIV positive and was having sex with these young boys. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I tweeted that to uh, Ivanka Trump and said, this is more than a low point. I tweeted that out to her this morning. You can find it on my Twitter feed. And uh, it is more than a low point. And this is not the only uh, report of this kind of thing happening. The only reason for this, Tom, is they're looking for a scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're looking for a scapegoat, and I think they're also looking for a way out. And, and you know, Donald Trump's technique has always been to blame other people for problems that he caused. He'll take the credit for things that are good. He always wants to spread the blame around. Richard, thank you for the call. It's, uh, it's, it's an important and, and uh, you know, fascinating story. Um, let's see here. And welcome back. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Um, well, I have several things, but mainly I wanted to talk about uh, what happened at the Pennsylvania rally the other night when he was so unhinged. And he made such a bizarre statement that I, I couldn't figure out why he said it. He, what he said was that Putin wanted him to win, that he really knew Putin wanted him to win. And obviously, that's not what Putin said. We all heard him say. No, wait a second. You got it backwards, Carol. He said Putin wanted him to lose. I'm sorry. And, yes. Yeah. To lose. And Putin told the reporter, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I did want yes. him to win, and I did direct Russian uh, efforts to help him win. Exactly. My mental dyslexia set in there. quite all right. <laughs> but anyway, I couldn't figure out why he would say that. And then uh, earlier, you had a caller on who said he was going to make a prediction. I think it had to do with the blue wave. Yeah. And I bet you any amount of money that Trump keeps repeating that, because that way, when the blue wave does hit, and I suspect it will, I really do, that when it does hit, Trump is going to say, ah, the Russians wanted me to lose their meddling in the election. I agree. I agree. We had, a, we had a caller in the last hour who said essentially the same thing. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it makes perfect sense to me. Donald Trump is, has never taken responsibility for anything in his life unless yeah. it turned out well. Anything that yeah. turned out poorly, uh, you know, he, he tries to get his fingerprints away from it as fast as possible. So, yeah, I think I spot on. I, you know, I'm I'm entirely expecting that. Uh, yep. yep. Carol, thanks for the call. It's it's this is this is a big deal. It really is. Uh, let's see. Brian in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, can I get just quickly say something about the 90-day moratorium, sure. it seems like that would only apply to somebody that was actually up for election, um, but I don't know. I, I think at law that's the case, and I may be wrong on that, but I believe that that's the case. And you're right, Trump is not up for re-election. But I think that it's broadly interpreted by prosecutors as, you know, this could produce a blowback that you don't want to have. So you just wait until after the election's over. Back to you. Yeah, you've got a terrific show going here, Tom, and it's being driven by the callers, but the interaction between you and the callers is just phenomenal, I, I wanted to say. So I've got a syllogism for you, Tom. Okay. <laughs> Political syllogism. So it goes like this. If primaries are like falling in love, and if elections are like getting engaged, then... The commitment that comes after the election, 
The long-term commitment is like being married. The governance, yes, and things don't always work out the way either party wants, and you have to resolve things and meet in the middle sometimes, and yeah, that's a great metaphor. I like it. Yeah, I'm glad you like it, Tom. Um, and finally, I'll just throw in uh, Nancy's call uh, reminded me that Mika uh, Brzezinski, I don't know mm -hmm. if you have time to watch. Yeah, Morning Joe. Yeah. But, I, I mean, she came out and said that uh, she thinks that Trump is unwell, and they were you, words like unhinged thrown around. And is there a report from this Omerta woman about how the Donald Trump that she used to know has disintegrated before her eyes or something like that? Oh, Amorosa, you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, she's, yeah, she's got sorry. a book coming out, and uh, apparently a piece of it was leaked today that, where she said that she thought that Trump was mentally deteriorating right in front of us all. You know, yeah. uh, on the one hand, he seems quite functional to me. I watched part of his uh, rally last night and part of his rally night before last. On the other hand, if you compare, you go back and look at video of him in the 1980s when he was being interviewed, particularly on issues of politics, he was so on top of things. He was at the top of his game. And right now, he has to repeat things three times to remember them. So I don't know, Brian, you know, if, if he's deteriorating, he's come down from a pretty good level of, of intellectual capacity. Deterioration happens. The guy's in his 70s and he's had a lousy diet and no exercise most of his life. Don't forget, you've got to get out there and get active. A democracy depends on you. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.